This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. And joining me today is someone who uh, I'm sure you guys have seen interviews that he's done in the past. You know about Willow Oak, Arquitos. The guy wears a lot of hats. You know, I'm going to explain them first before I even say that. Stephen Keel, that's who I got on today. <laughs> he, he is the president of Willow Oak Asset Management, a subsidiary of Enterprise Diversified Inc., publicly traded company. The symbol is SYTE on OTCQB. Stephen is the chairman of Enterprise Diversified. He's also the president and chief investment officer for Arquitos Capital Management. I've been a follower of Willow Oak for a long time and happened to interview two of the brilliant minds that run two of their affiliated funds, uh, Jeff Gannon from Focus Compounding and Dave Waters from Alluvial Capital. And with that, Stephen, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Robert. It's, uh, it's great to be here on on. Uh, on the show with you. Appreciate uh, all of the previous interviews you've done. Looking forward to this one. Oh, thank, thank you again for joining me and for, uh, for you know, listening in and, 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 uh, and checking us out. And so with, with that, as I do with all my guests on here, I'd love to start off with your background. You know, where, where did your passion for investing come from? Yeah. Well, before I started the fund, uh, I was an attorney actually uh, in private practice. I practiced for several years. I uh, started a um, RIA, small RIA, managed accounts with friends and family. This was about 11 years ago. And then about three years after that started the fund. But if you go back before that, uh, you know, even as a, as a young kid, I was one of those, those kids that had a paper route, you know, saved my money, had these kind of capital allocation decisions that you make as a 10-year-old, you know, which uh, baseball uh, card pack should I buy? We traded baseball cards. We did all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, you know, this is not necessarily a unique experience, but it, it is – uh, a way to learn about opportunity cost, uh, allocation of capital, and capital might not always be money. You know, sometimes it's uh, the value of a baseball card or something like that. In uh, in the hard work, quite frankly, you know, I had several jobs at a young age, uh, blue collar jobs that kind of grew up lower lower middle class, and so you know, I had to buy kind of a lot of my own clothes if I wanted something. I'd have to buy it myself and. Uh, so I was out every morning with paper route and, uh, you know, on to high school, had jobs there, worked through college as well in law school. Um, but, you know, along the way, it, this was actually in 19, I think it was 1996 when that Buffett biography, the Lowenstein one, Making of American Capitalist came out. And I remember reading that. I, I graduated high school in 96, went off to college and just kind of interested in it. I didn't think I would actually have a career, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in finance, but was always interested in businesses. Uh, you know, certain family members had had small businesses and things like that. I thought that would be something I would get into. I uh, went to law school after um, after college and uh, joined actually joined the Army Reserves as well. And uh, about twenty years in right now, I'm an, I'm an attorney in the Army Reserves. Had a deployment in two thousand five, and uh, when I got back from that deployment, I lived in Washington D.C. at the time. And I was heavily involved with public policy and some politics and things like that. Got a little burnt out from that, uh, quite frankly, after the military experience. 
And, uh, you know, I'd been investing on the side individually. And when I came back from that, I thought, well, you know, this is something I really enjoy doing. Uh, maybe I can make a career out of it. And you know, I was practicing law. I practiced law for another five or six years after that. But it saved up some money on the side, started investing for friends and family. And, you know, again, started doing the managed accounts on the side as well. It was fun. It was, you know, successful. Uh, and from there, you know, launched, launched the fund and continued. But I'd say the experience uh, with the legal, uh, legal world, we did, you know, we'll get into this later in the podcast, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, I had some cases where we saw some behind the scenes things with public companies. And it was, uh, it was an interesting experience. And uh, it really showed that, uh, you know, I don't want to say they're idiots in every, every area of life. But, you know, some of these people who lead very large uh, public companies, you'd be surprised <laughs> <laughs> the decisions they make, you know, when you're when you're seeing some of the details behind the scenes. So that was an interesting experience. Absolutely. Well, first, first thing I want to say, thank you for your service. That's yeah, that's incredible. Um, you know, I got I let's let's keep going. Let's follow up there. You know, from your time being an attorney, because that sounds like that really served a lot of what maybe your current investing philosophy is today. So yeah, I, listen, don't name names for companies or anything like that. But like, what what's some of the things you saw that you're like, huh? Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so I was always historically what you would consider, whatever the definition of a value investor is, a bottom-up fundamental investor. And that experience uh, the, with when I was an attorney, where you're seeing there were government investigations into public, a few public companies. Uh, there were like some M&A stuff, some second requests, things like that, FTC things. And, you know, you're reviewing different documents that are relevant to whatever the allegation was or whatever has to do with this merger. You're seeing emails, you're seeing memos and reports and things like that. And it really humbled me, you know, quite frankly, uh, that, you know, some of these companies, it's clearly I wasn't investing in any company. I wasn't doing anything like that. I wasn't, wasn't able or allowed to. Uh, but, you know, there are companies that you would think are, these are well-respected companies. And you're seeing some of the comments by the CFO that are just totally out to lunch. You know, it's like the old Carl Icahn empty suit analogy. And uh, it actually did make me appreciate Icahn a little bit more, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but that, that gave me a little bit more of an idea to, to look for company-specific situations. Uh, so, it, it, you know, looking, we're looking bottom-up in different, different investments, and it, it, it humbled me to uh, things that could happen and also opportunities because you know, I worked on some cases, they had spinoffs, had divestitures, mergers, uh, different things going on like that. And you could see how much value could be created uh, by these different company specific transactions. And so I, I definitely got more interested in that. It eventually led me to you know, some opportunities in some companies that had, might have tax loss uh, carry forward, some tax benefits. Uh, they might have had been going through some unique transaction, even things like, you know, CVRs and continued value rights and things like that. Uh, I, I definitely got very, very interested. I appreciated uh, some of those things that uh, I would say previous to that experience, I was, you know, was kind of a buy and hold, maybe, maybe large cap, mid cap kind of investor. And, uh, you know, and again, experiencing that and seeing the spinoffs and reading about Joel Greenblatt, that was at the time in the mid 2000s when you can be a stock market genius came out and you saw all these special situation uh, opportunities, like ways to do it. And that had a big impact in my style. Gotcha. So, I mean, how is that? Okay. So let, let's continue on because I want to get to where we're at today. So, yeah. okay. So you started, you know, uh, 
managing some funds, you know, manage accounts, that kind of thing when you started sure. the fund. You know, so where did the concept for Willow Oak Asset Management come from? How, how did that get you get from where you were to, to where we're at today? Yeah, in 2015, uh, myself and a few other partners took over the small public company. Uh, it, was, it was called SiteStar at the time, which is why the ticker is still SYTE. Uh, we got on the board. We ended up uh, replacing management or, or there were some, some issues with management that uh, caused them to resign. And, and in 2016, you know, we knew Dave Waters. Uh, he had started his fund or his uh, firm, Alluvial Capital, where he was doing managed accounts at the time. Loved what Dave was doing. We had shared some ideas, really respected his style. And he's very passionate about what he does. Has a long runway, which is an important thing. You know, in the asset management world, the earliest, earlier you can start, uh, the better if you're good. And we had the idea that we would uh, launch a fund with him, seed him to allow him to start a fund. Because, you know, for those of you, those people out there who trade and uh, and invest in small companies and unlisted companies and, and things like that, it can be really difficult to do in a managed account structure, especially when you have some accounts that are. Yeah, relatively small and some that are fairly large and you're trying to kind of make sure your transactions are, are the same across all these different portfolios. It's just much easier to do in a fund structure. And then it's, it's really difficult to do like rights offerings and things like that and different uh, little characteristics like that. You can't, you can't just can't do it uh, very well in the managed accounts. And so, you know, we talked to him, started the fund, we raised some capital for the uh, public company and we ended up, uh, investing in that. And so the purpose was then uh, for Willow Oak Asset Management, we created it in mid-2016 in order to uh, make the investment, the seed investment with Alluvial. And then from there, we did several other things. We decided uh, we could expand on that, really like that business. We get a fee share from it. We have the investment returns. Uh, but then we, we launched an internal fund with Keith Smith called Bonhoeffer Fund uh, the next year. And uh, then uh, ultimately, you know, teamed up with Focus Compounding as well to help them launch a fund. And then with Arquitos Capital, which is my fund, uh, we, you know, I, I use them now. I use Willow Oak to outsource my operations. So the, Willow Oak has a fund management services where there's an entire team that can handle uh, whether investor relations, compliance, liaisoning with all the auditors, administrators, and service providers. And it, it's really freed up my life to not have to handle you know, all that day-to-day -day operations and logistics. And now, you know, compliance is much better, due diligence, all those items are, are the equivalent of a much larger fund. And so that's a, a service we offer through Willow Oak to uh, outside funds. And then internally, you know, we're looking for uh, opportunities like we did with Bonhoeffer, where we started a fund with him and uh, looking for opportunities with Focus Compounding, where we, you know, we took a piece of, of their overall company to help them launch the fund and handle their operations as well. You know, I, I, I don't mean to take another step back, but I have to because, you know, I think what, what's interesting is that, and, and this, is, this is so, I mean, most of the people that, that maybe started a fund and that's not what they originally were, you know, doing in life really, or yeah. investing wasn't, they, they didn't think that eventually they were going to be a fund manager. You know, it start, investing started off as a hobby, you know, so for you, what was, what, what made you switch? Like what, what? then made you say, okay, I want to pursue this full time. And then I have to, I mean, I would assume that you did so well that you're like, okay, I think we could turn this into a fund. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so did well during the crisis. And, you know, I had been investing earlier before that as well. And, you know, three or four, even, you know, 2001, 2002, but got a little more serious about it in 04 and 05, even when I was deployed. And then the crisis happened. And quite frankly, I was interested in potentially doing it as a a field, uh, you know, when, when the crisis hit. And I was considering going to get an MBA. I was considering going to, uh, uh, to apply to be an analyst somewhere. The crisis happened in, in 07, 08, uh, oh, well, late 07, 08, and early 09. And, you know, there's no jobs. <laughs> and who I, who I loved at that time were, you know, Klarman and these types of people. And, uh, you know, Michael Price and all those. You know, I'm not going to get a job there. I had no specific experience. And I had legal experience, but I didn't even have an MBA, you know. And uh, didn't have a CFA and those types of things. So, you know, when we're coming out of the crisis and all those jobs disappeared, and there were a ton of compliance jobs. You know, I could have got a legal job somewhere uh, for a fund, for you know, investment bank, et cetera. It would have been not would not have been a problem at all. Uh, but then you get pigeonholed into that. And so I thought, well, let me just practice for a few more years and start to to see uh, first of all see how I perform during the crisis uh, with my own money and a few few other accounts that I was managing. And, and then see, see uh, if it was possible to kind of start doing it on the sides or manage accounts and see where it goes. And so that's what happened and uh, did well through the crisis, well enough to, to have confidence to, uh, you know, to, to start the firm and go from there. And then even when you start the firm, you know, the thing is when you're an investor and you love investing, you're doing it on the side, maybe you're trying to determine if you can do it full time. You don't think about all of the other aspects of actually having a fund or having managed accounts or dealing with an RIA, all those operational and logistical things. And even though I was an attorney, those were still things that you know, I had to learn. I had to use service providers for. Uh, I, I, uh, it was not fun to do. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're starting a business, right? And it takes away from the time that you're able to do research and manage the portfolio. So, you know, I, it took me several years, actually, even when I started the fund about eight years ago, it took several years to uh, really feel comfortable with everything on the operational side. And, you know, then going back to kind of the purpose of Willow Oak and some opportunities here, you know, that's, if I would have had Willow Oak and those types of operational um, infrastructure early on when the fund, I'm sure I would have done a lot better. I mean, I did, we did well performance-wise, but I'm sure I would have done a lot better. I would have been much happier. I would have been much less stressed. And I could have spent more time on, on research and, and actually a little bit of fundraising as well. Uh, so it took a few years to really appreciate all of that, that operational stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, on, on the investing side, it's, it's, uh, I think that what, what ultimately made me decide to want to do it full time was, you know, I'd go on vacation and I'd bring 10 Ks to read, you know, that's what I enjoy doing on vacation. And so uh, if you can make a career out of that, then you're, you're never really working, you know. That's, that's funny because uh, I, I just had a uh, Dean Trottier, he's a full-time private investor, and he was saying the same thing. He was like, you know, I'd be on vacation and I still want to go and check out what's going on in, yeah, in my portfolio. Yeah. Now I have time, free time to yeah. do the research I've always I've been wanting to do. <laughs> I love that. All right, so let's, let's dig into a little strategy. You know, we were talking offline how, you know, uh, we were trying to define or not really trying, but just saying, you know, what, what is the definition of, uh, these various, uh, types of investors out there? I'm not going to say one or the other, you know, so with that, keeping that in mind, you know, what, what would, how would you describe yourself and, and your strategy? Yeah. So a bottom up fundamental 
investor. I would describe it a little bit more of as a special situation type of investor. I'm looking for company specific uh, things. And so what I want to do is reduce the risk uh, of kind of the markets as a whole and increase the risk that I'm taking for the company itself. So, you know, in this specific time, we're in the middle of this uh, COVID-19, uh, things are shut down. Certain sectors have sold off. I mean, now we're certain things have really, you know, the market's kind of gone way up again, but certain sectors have sold off and there are particular companies in those sectors that are um, not the same, you know, as the other companies, but they get sold off because of they're, they're in the same index or because they're all in the same sector and people are just indiscriminately selling. And so that's where there's some opportunities today and those, those types of things. And this, not just today, this happens uh, intermittently. Uh, and you know, the, the opportunity is to find which company uh, is not like the others, even though they might be in the same industry to gain some amount of confidence that your analysis is correct and to have the, the, uh, the uh, discipline, I think, to hold it over a long enough time period where the thesis can, can be realized or the market can start to appreciate again what you might have appreciated now. And so, I, you know, I, I like to own things that, uh, I'd like to own things over long time periods. I like to own them where there's something company specific going on at the, at the point of purchase and that's why there is a mispricing, but then you have to give it enough time to transition either because the market appreciates what the operations are already happening or because there is some sort of transition that's in the process of occurring. And, you know, I do something called balance sheet income statement investing with, with those types of things where you're finding opportunities because of the strong balance sheets of particular companies, particularly small companies for this type of strategy. And then you have to give it time to, uh, you know, implement whatever strategy that they're changing, where, where they have reinvestment opportunities. You have to give it time for that to happen. And, you know, sometimes that's years. And as time goes by, a new type of investor comes in. You know, when I'm interested in a company, the only investors in it are watching it are generally other balance sheet style investors who are really looking at a price to book type of thing or a liquidation value or anything. Um, and, you know, to get multi-bagger opportunities, a whole different type of investor has to come in. So with a company like this, and I can think of one, MMA Capital is a good one uh, that I've been with for seven years now, six years. And it's transitioned from being that strong balance sheet to having now uh, great reinvestment opportunities where they make a, a more predictable return and they become income statement type of companies. Well, then at some point, you get people who are investors who are coming in who are willing to pay some sort of multiple of an income statement characteristic. And that's going to be a, that, that, that point, the stock price is going to be much higher than where it was when the balance sheet investors come in and the balance sheet investors then end up selling off to the income statement investors. My goal is to hold it throughout the whole time period. You know, it's interesting, you know, it, a lot of private investors, when they're looking at, you know, cause MMA capital, that's a, that's a micro cap, you know, a lot of a lot of private investors I've had on here, and just in general, that focus in microcaps are always looking for opportunities where it's it's you know either special special situation, a spinoff, and it's prior to any kind of institutions being involved or any real institutional money. But what's funny yeah. is that it sounds like you guys have, are trying to position yourselves as like that first institution to find some of these, maybe just before they're ready for some of these other firms yeah. out there. You know, well, that's where there's opportunities. You know, how do you find a company 
uh, that has safety on the balance sheet that's mispriced to such a degree that, you know, it's interesting to me. And this is where the value, I don't know what the definition of value investing is, but ultimately for me, it means I don't want to pay a lot of money for this stock. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, I love particular companies. You know, you look at it, whether an Amazon or Facebook, or these types of great companies, fine. Um, I just can't a MasterCard, you know? Yeah, it'd be great if I could have bought MasterCard at 30 times earnings. And it, it continues to, you know, perform over the last 25 years since it's been public, but I could never get myself to buy it at that multiple. And so this is my way around that where, you know, one, there's less analyst uh, stuff, coverage. And this is back in the day when analyst coverage was, you know, uh, there, there weren't as many individual kind of investors sharing research and things like that like there is today. Uh, but you're looking for, for companies that, uh, you know, there's, there's, you have an information advantage, basically, uh, with. And then, uh, you know, as time goes by, um, there also has to be, I don't want to use the word catalyst because that's, I think that's kind of a, you don't want to buy things for catalysts so that you're really fooling yourself that you'll be able to identify that um, typically. And, and then you don't know what the stock is actually going to do once that happens too, but you want something on the horizon, some opportunity on the horizon. And you know, for MMA capital, for example, they got into the Russell 2000 last year, right? So I'm looking for things that are not in indexes, but that will, will be in an index in the future um, or something that does not have analyst coverage now, but will in the future. Uh, so it has to have that growth opportunity too, that growth potential. That's interesting because, it, you know, those, those type of, again, I guess I'll just use catalyst or maybe growth driver. Or, I don't know. One of, one of those buzzwords, I guess we'll use. Yeah. Visions. I ask vision a lot. So visions, goals, go. I guess, right? <clears throat> it's interesting because you're, what, what you just mentioned, those are things that are really more stock related to the company, right? I mean, that fits with what your style more or less is, you know, but when you're, when you're talking company specific, are there anything, are there any things that you look for in particular where you're like, hmm, you know, uh, whether it's a new trend or an industry, like what, what are some of those things that you look for? So certain characteristics, you want to find them really before others do. And the best characteristic is that, is the company and the leadership, are they good capital allocators? And when you think of larger companies, it's very obvious to say, you know, to choose, you know, look at Mark Leonard at Constellation Software, even Buffett, you know, look at John Malone, um, you know, look at even, even uh, uh, in a different way, um, Jeff Bezos, you know, even Mark Zuckerberg in his own way. It's not my style of investing, but he's, he's done well with, uh, with the things that they've acquired. And so, you know, how do you define whether they're a good capital allocator or not, especially with smaller companies? you almost need to know or you need to have certain clues or incentives before they can prove themselves because it's easy 20 years later to say, yeah, the guy was a great capital allocator, but now it's too late because you've already, you know, the company's too big or the multiple's too high or something along those lines. And you can, you can win on those types of things, but then you have to wait for, you know, sharp market corrections and those, uh, you know, hasn't happened for 10 years until earlier this year. But, um, but, you know, so how do you find these things early? So you have to look for certain characteristics. And I think the incentives are a big thing. So that's why I was involved with some of these tax loss carry forward companies before the tax law changed, you know, many years ago. Um, you had things like, um, okay, what, what does the insider buying look like? You know, what's the history of buybacks for the companies themselves? Are they doing it at opportune times? Are they doing divestitures and spinoffs? Are they making acquisitions at fair prices? Uh, when strategically it makes sense to do that? And you can look at and gain a lot of information from with smaller companies uh, by 
and you can have a huge information advantage by looking back and examining so those decisions that they've made. And you can even talk to management in a way that they'll be open with you that you can't do with larger companies. And so, you know, what can you do to ballpark whether this team and this company is a great capital allocator or not? And you can piggyback off of other activist investors, you know, quite frankly. Um, you know, Lloyd Miller, he passed away a few years ago, but a lot of people followed him. He was in a lot of small companies, Peter Kamen as well. Um, you know, these other, you know, follow 13Ds, uh, follow uh, these activists who've taken over companies and then uh, done things with them. And, you know, so that's, that's what I've tried to do. You look kind of, you're, you're, you're not guessing, but you're, you're trying to see, you don't have full visibility. So you're following clues. And the clues are, you know, when are they doing buybacks? Why are they, or why and when are they making insider purchases? Uh, what are they doing with regards to different corporate transactions? Are they doing rights offerings at opportune times to take advantage of an opportunity and not just to, um, you know, allow the company to survive, for example? Are there tax loss carry forwards? And this is less relevant today, but, but back in the day, uh, you know, were there tax loss carry forwards that, uh, potentially could incentivize an activist getting involved. All right. So I don't mean to to transition real quick, but you, you did talk about capital allocation. And this has been something that's been, uh, a, you know, asked of me, you know, in some of our interviews, uh, you know, I'm seeing comments from my, our Twitter and, and, and YouTube and whatnot. And people are very curious about, you know, how investors are deploying capital in times of crisis. You know, you talked about in your, in your, you talked about in your bio uh, that you were investing during 01, 2000, that the bubble, and then the crap, then the recession, 07, 08, 09, you know, and then, and then now here we are, we're in a global crisis, COVID-19, the whole thing, you know, so how do you manage your capital and, and your investment decisions during times like these? Yeah. So the greatest advantage you can have is a long-term time horizon. And so when you're a bottom-up fundamental investor, First of all, nobody's going to get the timing right uh, unless it's luck, <laughs> you know? I mean, even going into the crisis in 08, 09, um, you know, you watch the big short. I mean, they're two years early, three years early. <laughs> you know, yes, they're right, but sometimes early uh, is not enough. You know, sometimes early is wrong because, you know, if you have other investors or outside investors, if you run a fund, and early can be wrong for you as an individual investor if you don't have the discipline to, to stick to your thesis. Um, and that, this even goes for companies like Amazon and, and Microsoft, you know, in 1998, you buy these companies and they're at the same price for 15 years, basically, you know, or 12 years or whatever, eight years. And that's really difficult to do to just sit there, even if it's uh, your own money and you don't have outside pressure from, from your uh, investors in a fund. Um, but so, you know, so what do you do? First of all, in this crisis, you know, there is a crisis going on. The stock market crisis lasted a very short amount of time. And people wonder, oh, hey, why didn't Buffett put money to work? And, you know, Buffett's actually been selling some stuff and things like that, trying to raise more capital. And there's other issues related to maybe his risk assessment and the insurance side and other things like that to make sure they're bulletproof. But the other end of it is he really only had three-week period, a month period, to actually put something to work. And if you're trying to acquire a company, that's not enough time. Uh, if you're trying to buy stuff on the open market, but there's uncertainty on the operations, that can be risky too. You know, you're, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what earnings are going to be. You could apply some sort of normalized thing, but some, this is a crisis where companies can disappear and go bankrupt. 
And so it's very difficult when you have a one month kind of time period to take advantage of this, uh, that you're trying to assess whether companies uh, are either going to survive, let alone normalized earnings or when that'll happen. Um, and especially when the, 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 the companies that, uh, the stocks that cratered the most are the ones that legitimately were most at risk. Uh, and you know, again, there's opportunities here and there in there in that, but, but it's difficult. It's very difficult. Uh, and so I, I don't think you go back and you say, well, this is an obvious opportunity, you know, uh, this, this crisis. And it didn't feel like an obvious opportunity even in 08. Uh, and even back in 01, 2000, 2001, and, and after 9-11 and things like that, you know, these are difficult times. It's, it's very easy to look back and say, oh, if I only would have bought this company at that time, or if I only would have even bought the index or something like that. But when you're going through it at that time, it's difficult. And it's not just difficult from an emotional perspective. And, you know, we're trying to be disciplined. We're trying to be analytical and things like that. It also is difficult from an, an analysis perspective. Uh, as someone who's looking at the specifics of the companies and trying to make uh, predictions, you know, five, seven, ten years out uh, about what what the uh, long term, you know, kind of cash flow generation of these companies will be. So it's not easy, you know, and it's 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 you don't want to be the one kind of throwing rocks at uh, other investors. Say, well, if you would have just put it to work during this time period. Um, now that being said, you know, there's there's a lot of work to do, especially in this time period because it's it's been a relatively short amount of time where the market cratered and then came back. Um, and there's might be some opportunities in the future. I'm a little bit negative about the, you know, the current overall environment as well. But then again, it's being propped up by, by certain institutions too. But, you know, we'll see what happens over the next six months or a year. But, you know, you look back at 08 and you had a decent amount of time. You had a, you know, from, from March 08, um, when Bear Stearns fell up until, um, you know, when Lehman fell later that year, six months later or so, um, I think when country companies got sold to Bank of America, I think it was in like March 08. Um, Think people thought things were stabilized, you know. I mean, you had you had about a year there to really analyze things and make some predictions um, and look at things in in industries that were not directly affected, um, you know. So, you know, it's tough. I'd say for people kind of watching and listening right now, look for sectors that have sold off, that have not recovered, and see. Look for companies that uh, are not are not like the other ones. And so, you know, there's a particular company, I'm not going to share the name right now because I'm still acquiring some of it, but it's, in, it's a mortgage REIT. Um, it yields 15%. It's a micro cap. It's a sub $100 million company. And uh, it does not have collateral calls. It doesn't mark to market. It has a partnership with uh, an outside funder uh, where the repayments uh, are, 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 um, are guaranteed, virtually guaranteed. So it doesn't have the same risk, but it dropped... Uh, gosh, it dropped 70%. And now it's come back another 50%, but it's got another 50% to go, <laughs> quite frankly. And right now it's yielding 15%. And so, you know, that, those are the things you're looking for, right? Um, and then the other thing is some things that you may already own that may have dropped that you have some confidence in. You know, you know those companies better than companies that you're starting to look at now. And part of the whole thing is you need to have the discipline and confidence to hold hold a company, hold a stock over this entire time span. So not just the next six months, but the next year, the next two years until all this comes up. And it takes time to build that confidence in, in a particular holding. And uh, so if you have it in a current holding, maybe that's the time to double down on it. Right. You know, it, and it's it's hard, you know, especially when you're talking to maybe people that weren't, uh, didn't have any assets at work, you know, prior to everything, uh, to the pandemic. 
And, yeah. you know, you sometimes hear people out there saying, you know, or, or I've asked a few investors out there like, well, what can you do to get prepared? And, and you're, you said to yourself and, you know, uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, of course, but in the midst of it, we didn't know how long this initial kind of volatility was going to last yeah. for. You know, I mean, really, what was it like a month, month and a half, if that, you know, so like, you know, the normal thing would be, especially if you haven't deployed any capital, like, okay, well, now's the time to do the work and see what maybe opportunities might be out there. And who knows, we, we're still relatively early, I guess you'd say, in, in the pandemic. So things might not be as rosy as we see. And there's other power, you know, uh, forces at play. But you know, it, it, it's difficult because if you hadn't had a watch list or a wish list going into this, you know, it's kind of like, well. Uh, and you have to be willing to get early too, because, you know, again, what, however long this thing lasted until, you know, really the NASDAQ's positive on the air now. But, uh, you know, you think, uh, well, you know, we've got a few months here. I can do some work now on some new names and then see what happens. And then by the time the whole see what happens thing is, it's gone. The opportunity has gone. And even in some larger companies, you know, these things, they, it, it happened. There's still some stuff out there, I think. But, but I think the issue now is some things that are cheap, at least for mid-cap or larger companies, you, you know, you can do some sort of multiple, you know, normalized earnings. You can do some kind of, you know, look at, look at kind of, you know, deeper long-term metrics. What are their margins going to be? What's ROE look like? What's ROIC look like? Um, you just don't know what those inputs are. And you don't know what those inputs are, are going to be in a couple of years. And that's, that's challenging. I think where you really find some opportunities are in some smaller companies. And what I've, what I've generally looked at, not only now, but also during the crisis, and even going back to the early 2000s, look, when there's insider buying and where people uh, from sober leadership, you know, certain companies, not, not kind of these, these people that just do it for show, if there's insider buying, it's something to look at. You know, if you want to run some sort of screens, do it on insider buying type of things, do it on activists, you know, uh, increasing their positions, uh, do it, do it on uh, some insider, um, insider transactions, uh, some share buybacks and things like that. Uh, so that's generally what I've been looking at during this for some names on the watch list or new names or to see that it's happening in some existing names uh, as well. Because, you know, especially if like a CFO is buying a significant portion of their net worth, during this time period, you know, that's not the CEO who's, who is generally more marketing oriented and understands that, you know, if it's a COO, if it's a CFO, or if these are operational finance people and they're putting a significant amount of their, their salary or net worth to work now, that's, that's a company that's worth taking a look at. Absolutely. All right. So I want to uh, switch topics a little bit. You actually brought this up a little bit earlier. And, uh, you know, you started, well, this you didn't bring up earlier, but you guys just recently started a, uh, a, a, on your YouTube channel, Value yeah. Hour, and you featured a few interviews with, uh, you know, both uh, friends and, and, uh, and fund managers that are affiliated funds, yeah. really talking about, you know, the, the recent Berkshire Hathaway meeting. So I, we don't have to get into, I mean, look, we could do another three podcasts just on that right now. But you know what? What were some of the main takeaways that you that you saw from that, uh, especially with regard to where we're currently at in our global economy? Yeah, it, you know, it was sobering, quite frankly, to watch this. On, I mean, it's nice that we're able to do it virtually, but you know, he's sitting up there in the auditorium 
alone. And I go to the annual meeting, I've been going the last you know, 12 years or so, and uh, it's, it was disappointing not to be able to go, certainly. But someone like Buffett, you know, he's 89 years old, and I think this was one of the guys, either Jeremy Deal or Thomas Brazil made this point during, during our interview, um, that, you know, this is his birthday, essentially. It's like a birthday party every year. He's 89 years old, and he loves uh, interacting with the shareholders. And they love interacting with each other and with him as well. And he doesn't get to do that this year. And that's, it's sad. You know, it's sad. It's sad that Munger wasn't there. It's sad that he's kind of sitting alone in a, in a huge auditorium. And, uh, you know, it, it's, there's uncertainty for sure. I, you know, you could sense the uncertainty from him also. Long, there's long-term confidence, which he always has. But the, um, the short-term uncertainty is real and certainly related to the insurance aspects, but also these companies that he had just been buying just a few months earlier. You know, you think about the airlines, you think about different uh, things like that. He trimmed, you know, he just trimmed almost completely the Goldman Sachs stake. He trimmed some of the banks. Um, you know, he's in a different, obviously he's in a different situation than any of us are in terms of capital allocation decisions. You know, he, his universe is much smaller than ours, so we should not just follow his lead. But at the same time, that uh, cautiousness, uh, we really should be humble to that because he's seeing information in certain industries that uh, behind the scenes information. And these might be industries that act, actually are investable type of businesses and industries that we, we might do. Um, but he's seeing day-to-day -day sales figures, um, and other things like that. And, you know, one thing to keep in mind when you think about uh, in this environment, there's going to be cost cutting. There already has been cost cutting. CapEx, you know, we've seen this across the board with companies. Um, you know, one company cutting CapEx, that's another company's revenue, you know. And if you're extrapolating some sort of normalized revenue, normalized earnings and things like that, and if there's any sort of debt on a company that could be the recipient of that revenue loss, you can really get into trouble fairly quickly there. Um, so you you know you should be cautious, and you really should. Although although the Fed is you know lowered interest rates, or you've made these loan programs and things like that, it's like it seems like it's a safe environment to carry a lot of debt on the balance sheet. You've got to be you've got to be really careful as an investor with those companies with a low amount of debt, even if it's low. Uh, interest rates because again the revenue is going to be uncertain and I think even the insiders in some of these companies are not going to realize right now are not realizing what the effect is going to be six months or a year from now so anyway you know that's one kind of takeaway is it's just sad uh, it was disappointing not to be there uh, the cautiousness is uh, sobering and humbling and I think we should take that and it doesn't mean doesn't mean there's not opportunities for us but we should take that into account in some of our estimates um, yeah, you know, and, and then beyond that, you've got, look, it's, you miss Munger too. <laughs> you know, he had a nice interview a couple weeks earlier that was entertaining, but, uh, him not being there, uh, and not being there with Buffett and at their age, uh, you know, these are inspirational people, figures for, uh, for, for most of us, uh, you don't have to agree with everything they, they do, but you know, Buffett was the reason why I got excited about investing in 1996 when I read his bio, you know, that original bio. And uh, it's, it, you realize that these are, you know, he's 89 years old. He hadn't had a haircut in a while. Uh, his PowerPoint skills were effective yet simple. <laughs>
Um, but you know, his it's it's his age is there, and uh, he's not going to be with us uh, forever. That's for sure. I mean, it's it's it, it it's sad because it just feels like an opportunity lost, right? You know, uh, yeah. I know I know a lot of people every year now. That's the main re- like bucket list. Got to go to Omaha. Got to go do this. So it just sucks that you know. Well, we catch up with people there. There's yeah. other parties and ancillary events. It's good. To, there's people I see once a year there just to catch up. But think about what it is for the city of Omaha. You know, that's such an economic positive for the city. And that, and yeah. that's just a, and that's just a microcosm for other cities in the country around the world you know other events like that right vegas new orleans look at uh you know film festivals look at sporting events and the effect that this has had on the economy worldwide look the olympics were (laughs) were delayed i mean all of those cities we've not seen the effect as of yet and i think you know look over the six months year even a couple years um, it's, it's tough. You know, there's going to be restaurants, retail, you know, certain retailers who are, are filing bankruptcy. There's going to be restaurants that don't come back. Now, look, I don't want all this to be a negative. You know, it's, it is a negative and people are losing their lives. It's a very sad situation. Uh, but this is all part of capitalism. It's all part of creative destruction. It's all, you know, this is, you know, we wouldn't choose it. This is like forced out upon us. Um, but the companies that survive and thrive are those that are finding ways to do things better, more efficient, more effective. And as investors, we have to look at that, you know, and we have to, to see um, which companies are able to not only survive, but uh, which companies can take advantage of opportunities, which can take market share, which can take over other, other competitors, uh, which, which can more effectively allocate capital. This is the time where we can look back in the next year or two, look back to today, that the decisions that are made at specific companies, this is how we find uh, those new, cap, new, new people, new managers, new uh, leadership that are, are great capital allocators. They're the ones making decisions now that we can watch. And those are companies we might want to you know, be invested in, in, in the future. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, again, the creative destruction happens. We can't stop it, even if we want to. <laughs> you know, it still happened under communist regimes and socialist regimes and things like that. Uh, it happens on the black market. You know, so this is like human nature. And as outside observers, as investors, we're kind of more observers there. Uh, we we have, you know, let's let's look for companies that not only are surviving but also can thrive now and in the future. No, absolutely. And look, you know. Um, it's it's pretty interesting to be a conscious investor right now, you know. And what I mean by that is, you know, back in the last recession, I, I was, for me, I'm, I guess for me personally, you know, I was still an undergrad. I didn't think twice about this, you know. And then back in nine eleven, you know, I was, you know, eleven years old, you know. I, yeah. I didn't, I had no idea of, uh, you know, the the global economic effects, you know. And so it's. It's really interesting to see what's happening right now because this is unlike anything else that's ever been in existence. Let's be let's be frank. Well, the ramifications that'll happen five, seven, ten years from now, we can't even predict. You know, nine eleven. Look, I was deployed in 05 because of nine eleven. You know, I, I joined the Army Reserves in two thousand. I would have never imagined. You know, you think of there's a great Josh Wolf quote. It's you know, essentially I'll paraphrase it, but risk is you know what's left over after you've thought of all the things that you, you could think of, you know, <laughs> risk is what's left over. Basically. And that's the idea behind it. We would have never thought that when I, when I was in 2000, that 9-11 would have happened. I would have been in Iraq five years later. 
Um, the global economic crisis in 08, 09, uh, you know, look, that ultimately led to uh, ultimately led to Trump being elected, quite frankly, you know, whatever your political view is, good or bad. But, you know, it led to that populism uh, on, on all areas of the spectrum. There were things in 2010, 2011, you know, it had uh, uh, the global and uh, uh, regulatory ramifications. Uh, you know, everything that happened with the banks afterwards and all the regulations associated with that. And, uh, you know, not only that, but day-to-day -day kind of activity, right? So there will be ramifications from this. They could be, they could be political. They could be, you know, certainly will be regulatory in some fashion. Um, you know, it, it could lead to, to uh, war-type situations as well, even just regionally, not just, is, is not a great way to put it, but regionally as well. Uh, and we, we, we're not going to know. You know, even 10 years from now, we're, we're really not, not going to know. Um, and so it's, it's really, we don't want to go out predicting to think that the world is, will be the same in five years as it was five years ago. Yeah, no, I think it would be, I think it would be a mistake to think that everything's going to go back to normal and every, yeah. you know, it's going to be a completely new normal. I mean, look, for me personally, for, I, I'm not getting on a plane anytime soon. I'm not going to a restaurant anytime soon. You know, I, yeah. I, it's sad for me to say, but it's the truth, right? I mean, I don't think any of us want to unless we have to really, right? Uh, but anyways, I mean, look, we're all hoping that there is at least some sort of new normalcy that just, you know, at least we get back to some well, we need a new term, you know, because we had, we had Bill Gross's new normal after 08, 09. I don't know what we, right, we could go back. I think, was it Truman that created the word normalcy? Or normality. It was actually supposed to be normality, and I think he said normalcy or something like that. Let's, let's just ask, listen. Let's ask Michael Lewis. I feel like if there's anybody out there that can come up with a good term for what we're going yeah. to, it's Michael Lewis. You know, I, 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 he's my favorite author. So I'm, I'm. Well, think of the movies that are going to come out of this too, like The Big Short. You know, I'm just talking about investing. You know, let's oh, yeah. not talk about yeah. until we want right. to. But, but. Um, but yeah, you know, in 08 and the big short and all that, the Bill Gross and people who got, you know, Jim Paul or uh, John Paulson and people who became famous from that, who's, who's going to come out of this, you know, in the next year or two as, uh, as the, the next wave of kind of famous investors. You know? It'll be interesting to watch. I mean, it could be Stephen Keel. Who knows? I mean, uh, we'll see. Well, I had a great hedge on. I, unfortunately, <laughs> I sold it a little too early talking about selling too early on something. I had a hundred bagger as a hedge. Uh, very small position, but uh, it actually went up 110 times, <laughs> and uh, it did protect part of the portfolio. But uh, I sold it, sold it, you know, trimmed it along the way a little too early, unfortunately. But yeah, there's you never know, and especially I think there's opportunities for smaller, smaller funds for sure. Um, you know, that's why we're doing the stuff with Willow Oak. Why we have, you know, why you interview a lot of these smaller fund managers also, and you know, they're in my kind of uh, orbit discussion you know these are people who i commiserate with and share ideas with and things like that and uh you know i, th I think there's real opportunities for smaller companies and investors uh whether whether professional investors or uh individual investors in in smaller companies where you can have really multi-bagger opportunity asymmetric gains and uh at a low risk no, you're, you're right. I mean, look, the main reason I love interviewing some of these smaller fund managers is because there's a, a lot more creativity that you need to have, you know, as, as you go up the ladder and you go up the scale, you know, you kind of have to, there's, there's only a certain pool that you can really play in, you know, I mean, not, not a lot of these larger firms can even really do anything and not just small nano, but or not even just micro and nano, but even small cap, right. You know, yeah. so 
so that that's that's why it's interesting to me because that's where you really hear the diverse opinions of you know we talked about i don't even know how to define value investing guess what how do you define investing once you start talking to some of these smaller fund managers and how they're deploying capital right so yeah it's unique and impressive and i i agree the creativity there is is amazing and even more so now than you know when i started 15 20 years ago or so and professionally 10 years ago uh, you know, people use Twitter in a way that you would have never imagined 10 years ago. Right. Uh, well, think about like Dan Lowe back with his Mr. Pink persona, you know, on these message boards 15 years ago or so. And, you know, he, he, uh, he, he parlayed it into what, what he has and, and uh, there'll be people and there have been people who are doing it uh, with Twitter now. You know? Gotcha. All right. Well, uh, you know, I want to get to uh, one question that I like to ask every uh, guest that I have on here. You know, what, what investing experience would you say had the greatest impact on your career? Yeah, so I mean, I think going back to, um, from a more recent thing was going back to when I was a lawyer and seeing those behind the scenes uh, types, of, types of things. But, you know, if you want to go back to the beginning, uh, I do remember, you know, as a kid when I was delivering newspapers, I lived in Florida at the time, and I, um, I had a route and my sister had a route like next to it. So take me like 45 minutes or so to do my run. She had to do hers next to her at the same time. And then she wanted to give hers up, right? And so I said, oh, I'll take over your route, but it was too many papers for a bike. And so my dad said, hey, Steve, you know, I'll, I'll help you finance, buy a golf cart, 600 bucks. I had 300 bucks to put up. He goes, I'll, I'll loan you the other 300 bucks and, uh, and you can pay me back over a certain time period, a certain interest rate and things like that. And my dad was like not an experienced capital allocator or anything like that. But it, you know, so I'm 10 years old and I thought, okay, well, what's the rate of return? Okay, how soon am I gonna make that 300 bucks back? I get this extra money from my sister's route, et cetera. And uh, you know, so it's an interesting capital allocation thought process at 10 years old, you know, where you're saying, well, I'm making kind of a capital investment into the, uh, um, you know, to the golf cart. I'm getting additional revenue, which allows me to have uh, uh, kind of, you know, additional kind of margin, so to speak. <laughs> and so you're actually kind of thinking like a little businessman, right? Now, now here's, here's the thing where I really had an advantage of that I didn't know at the time, though, was that, you know, my, the golf cart had to get charged up every night. <laughs> my dad never, like, charged me extra for the, the electricity in the house. So I had that kind of ongoing expense that I, I never kind of experienced. But, but, you know, it's good, I think, for anyone who has children, uh, you know, teach them little things like that at an early age. They say, well, you know, if you have some sort of an allowance or some sort of like side job or something like that, is there a way for you to appreciate CapEx, uh, maybe a loan, repayment? You know, what sort of decisions can you uh, force onto to a kid at a young age uh, that they might remember, you know, look, this was 30 years ago for me. <laughs> you know, and I, I remember this antidote and it actually had a pretty good effect and it, it made me appreciate then in high school, when I started reading kind of business related books, uh, it made me have, you know, appreciate them and have a foundation. Right. Uh, well, you were probably you were, got me more interested. I was going to say, you were able to actually say, Hey, I did that with the, with my paper route. Yeah. 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 So here's right. You know, here's a rate of, uh, you know, uh, what should I pay off the principal now? Or should I continue at you know, this 5% rate of return? When, <laughs> when should I do that? Et cetera, et cetera. You know, what, what additional, again, what additional revenue that was I able to do and, and things like that. And, um, and, you know, I think that's when you think of a big thing, how do you get people like kids uh, interested in business, not just stocks, not just trading, because we're not talking about trading. We're talking about analyzing a business and then determining if the value of it is appropriate or not. 
a value measured by the stock price. And, you know, I think you, you get them interested in an early age, uh, just with those little everyday things like that. And then when they confront it in school or they confront it in some book that they're forced to read later on, they'll actually have a foundation. And, and that's where the interest, you know, that curiosity comes from. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I had that and that led all the way to, again, when I was an attorney uh, saying, you know what, the CFO is not making that decision that I would have made as a 10 year old and there's something off here. <laughs> For sure. So my next question is, and, uh, and by the way, thank you for taking all this time. I know we've, uh, man, we've covered a lot today. Um, we can do it again. For oh, sure. for, oh, for sure. Um, so my next question, and again, this is one of the questions I do ask everybody and that, and that's really advice for, as I usually say for new investors, but with you, with, because of, you know, the your fund management services business, you know, you have so, so much experience in helping launch new funds and managing them, you know, for, you know, investors that have been successful and now looking at maybe starting a fund. What, what advice do you have for those individuals that might be looking to start a fund? Yeah. If, if you know, for people out there who are looking to start a fund, don't underestimate uh, that you're actually starting a business. You're not just investing, <laughs> you know, um, there's a lot of work involved. That's not what you want to do. Uh, when you don't want to get up and say, well, now I'm going to, I'm going to reread these documents or I'm going to pay a lawyer to do this. And you actually, even if you're paying a lawyer to do it, you still need to understand it yourself, you know, or you're helping an investor uh, fill out a, uh, you know, the offering docs, or even if it's managed accounts, just going through the process with, with all that. There are a lot of logistical operational things, you know, wait till you get a, you're an RIA, you're going to get audited by the state. You know, they, they do that every few years. Um, and you know, all the record keeping, every, all of that is very, very, very important. You know, right when you start off, you've got to get that right. You've got to make sure your fee structure is right. Your operations are right. Your compliance is good. Um, you're doing everything, you know, by the book with the state uh, and with, um, you know, any, any other types of things, any other type of regulatory bodies. Um, and so you got to get that right, right off the bat, because you don't want to get, you know, the reputation that you, you kind of did something wrong. And then you're, you know, later you're screwed later on, you know, that's, that's on your, uh, on your mark. And, and, you know, quite frankly, too, you have to have the appreciation that you're, you know, you're managing, if you're an RIA, you're a fiduciary for other people's money, uh, not just in the way that you're investing, but also in the way that you're handling all the record keeping and compliance and operational things. So, uh, you know, I would, I would be very careful. You want to do that right. You want to really take the time, make sure your service providers are ones that you want to be with for a long time. Uh, you're going to have to invest in that, you know, set enough money aside as well. You know, when I started the fund, I was still kind of working um, when I started the managed accounts. And then, um, you know, you, you want to make sure you saved up a couple years worth of, of um, returns because, you know, of, of expenses, not just for the company, but also for uh, your living expenses. Because the thing is, you know, you could be the greatest investor in the world. This thing happens, some black swan type thing happens, which somehow these black swan things happen like pretty regularly, you know, every 10 years at least. And uh, what happens if you start at a difficult time and you're, you're starting to get a few investors, your performance right off the bat is not good, be, you know, because of things that might even be beyond your control. Um, and then you're, you think you're going to raise additional money and you're not able to. And if you don't have kind of those savings and if you don't have uh, the discipline or the, that really long-term perspective, um, then you can run into some short-term problems there. So, you know, I just be careful. I'd say, you know, if it's your passion, do it. Um, make sure it's your passion though. <laughs> you know, it's something you want to do for life and it's not something you just stumbled upon a couple of years ago. You know, again, I've been investing for 10 years. I've been kind of 
interested in business stuff 15 years um, before I even started doing this with other, other, you know, people's money professionally. Um, and, uh, you know, so make sure it is something that you're going to enjoy, uh, you know, far into the future. And it's different managing your own money as it is managing other people's money. For some people who manage other people's money, it does, it changes their, it changes their risk profile. It changes their decision-making. There's emotional elements that get kind of brought into the decision-making that wasn't there before. And you might've been a great investor individually, um, but you know, what happens if you, you have a down you know, year or two and you've got a, a, an outside investor questioning you? Are you gonna be confident in your strategy even, even through that? And sometimes, what if that outside investor is your mom you know, or your cousin? or something like that who's close to you and now you're having to answer those questions, a good friend. Um, so it's not as easy as it seems and you know, so you have to be confident, but, but realistic confidence, realistic. I mean, you have to be, be humble to, that you could be wrong and where you're confident, make sure you actually do have the experience enough that that, that confidence is legitimate. Um, but look, if it's your passion, go for it. Make sure you save some money aside for a couple of years for living expenses, uh, for unforeseen things. Um, make sure that your operations are correct, whether you do it yourself, you know, which, which I did myself, or whether you take on or discuss it with an outside service provider, uh, which may be like Willow Oak that handles operations for things like that. Um, and there are, there are probably some others out there, out there as well. And so, you know, make sure you have everything in order and realize you're starting a business. You're not just kind of expanding as an investor. And uh, there's a huge time commitment to that. And there's a financial commitment as well. Well, with that, we're there. Um, before I let you go real quick, um, just want to make sure we get some proper disclosures in there on maybe some of the companies mentioned. You mentioned that you are shareholder of MMA Capital. Are you shareholder of any other companies that you mentioned uh, throughout the podcast? Uh, I think we mentioned Berkshire, which yeah. uh, I own a couple of leaps, but nothing, nothing substantial. They had some leaps on Berkshire, which I would not, uh, no recommendations here, here or there. Um, I don't think we mentioned any other companies, did we? Uh, Constellation Software. Oh, Constellation, yeah, Constellation Software, Microsoft, Amazon, no, uh, no other holdings Google, there. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. All right. Well, with that, Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate this. I'm, uh, of course, we got to ask where, <laughs> where can my audience go and find more information about Willow Oak Asset Management? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, WillowOakFunds.com. Uh, I do. We have been doing some videos on YouTube, which uh, you can go to Willow Oak Asset Management uh, on YouTube. Uh, you know, Twitter, uh, Arquitos, Arquitos.com is my fund and uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter as well. Just uh, search Stephen Keel, K-I-E-L or search Arquitos. Perfect. All right. With that, Stephen, thank you again so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Stay safe. Good luck. And uh, I look forward to our next chat. You too. Thanks so much, Robert. Thank you.